you pray with me? Now, Father, as we turn to consider your word, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that trust and experience the faith that can overcome even anxiety. And Father, we pray that you would do this for our good and our blessing and our peace and for your glory in our lives. And Lord, we know that in order for you to do this, the Lord Jesus must increase and we must decrease. So Father, do so by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. In 1948, the English-American poet W.H. Auden won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his poem titled, The Age of Anxiety. The Princeton edition of Auden's poem describes its reception this way. When it was first published in 1947, The Age of Anxiety immediately struck a powerful chord, capturing the imagination of the cultural moment that it diagnosed and named. Today, the phrase Age of Anxiety is perhaps better known than the book-length poem that it titles. This simple phrase, the Age of Anxiety, resonated so well both then and now that it paved the way for dozens of articles and books and even a symphony on the theme of anxiety as individuals, and anxiety as a cultural phenomenon that is unique to our age. Which naturally begs the question, is ours an age of anxiety? Well, I think the evidence suggests that in some senses, it no doubt is. For instance, listen to this title from a recent Pew report. Most U.S. teens see anxiety and depression as a major problem among their peers. In this study, teenagers reported that anxiety and depression topped the list of major problems that they observed in their peers. This list included bullying and drug addiction, drinking alcohol, poverty, teen pregnancy, and gangs. And on top of that list was anxiety and depression. Another report, this one from the American College Health Association in 2018, indicates that over 60% of college students experienced overwhelming anxiety over the past 12 months, while 22% of these had been diagnosed or treated by a professional. One recent article in The Guardian notes the sharp uptick in available pharmacological and therapeutic treatments for anxiety. The title of this article, Feel Better Now? The Rise and Rise of the Anxiety Economy. Part of the reason for these new treatments is the recognition by health professionals that anxiety has dire health consequences. 
Well, if these trends are to be weighed and counted, I think it's safe to conclude that ours is an age of anxiety. And how ironic is it for our age to be so characterized and marked by anxiety, an age that has no parallel in history, in material wealth, in daily luxury, in autonomy and freedom, and even self-determination. But of course, in another real sense, the anxiety and the worry that we all observe around us, even in our own lives, it's not at all a new phenomenon, is it? It's as old as the garden. And it is addressed directly in several places in the scriptures, including in our passage this morning, Matthew 6, 25 through 33. So what is anxiety? The Oxford English Dictionary defines anxiety this way. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. This is an okay definition, but often we can better know the meaning of a word by identifying its opposite. And by by this definition, the opposite of anxiety is simple confidence or certainty or maybe being at ease as if the lack of confidence or certainty or or ease indicates anxiety. But I don't think that this is the scriptural opposite of anxiety. I want to suggest that the scripture's definition of anxiety has its opposite not in bald confidence or naked certainty or just plain being at ease, but instead the opposite of anxiety is faith, which is a confident certainty in God, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit. So whether you yourself have experienced the paralyzing effects of extreme anxiety, or you tend to sail through life as a happy-go-lucky, carefree kind of person with, with no cares in life, perhaps even tending toward irresponsibility, probably you're somewhere in between those two poles. The reality is we are all finite, limited creatures. We do not know everything that the future holds. And because of this, we live with a degree of uncertainty. And every uncertainty presents us an opportunity. An opportunity to to respond in either anxiety or in faith. But here's a truth that our anxious age is not ready to hear. Because the Bible commands us not to be anxious or to worry in numerous places, including in our passage today and even in the one that we read this morning, Philippians 4, then it follows that disobedience to this command, the command not to be anxious, is a sin. Therefore, when we experience anxiety which we all have experienced, we all probably experience more regularly than we even recognize, this is always an opportunity for repentance and faith. And what we have in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, is a God-inspired passage that's a gift to the church that he can use to help us overcome anxiety in our lives by faith. 
So this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. And in this text, we're going to see Jesus direct his apostles to consider God's purposes, God's providence, and God's kingdom righteousness in order to overcome anxiety by faith. So if you're taking notes this morning, those are our three points. In Matthew 6, 25, we see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that comprehends God's purposes. In Matthew 6, 26 through 30, we're going to see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that rests in God's providence. And then in Matthew 6, 31 through 33, we're going to see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that seeks God's kingdom and his righteousness. So first, we see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that comprehends God's purposes. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew writes these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the side of a mountain near the Sea of Galilee, where it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Our passage begins with the word, therefore. Why is that there? Well, often that question can be answered by glancing back at the section that is immediately before, in this case, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and asking about the connection between those two. And we could sum up Matthew 6, 19 through 24 by saying that in these verses, Jesus presents three angles on the only two ways of being in the world. And just as is the case in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the difference between these two ways of being in the world is the difference between Christianity and non-Christianity, or the difference between a life that is informed and shaped by the knowledge of God and one that is not. D.A. Carson summarizes the differences that Mark out the Christian from the non-Christian in these three angles in Matthew 6, 19 through 24 this way. He says that in each case, it is the unswerving loyalty to kingdom values that characterize the Christian as opposed to idolatrous unbelief of the unbeliever. So in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, just to summarize, the Christian heart is with God in heaven where he stores up treasure while the unbelieving heart nurses idols in his treasures on earth. In Matthew 6, 22 through 23, the Christian heart is full of the light of God which dispels the darkness while the unbelieving heart shuns divine light for idolatrous darkness. And in Matthew 6, 24, the Christian's heart is devoted to God while the unbelieving heart idolizes money as the God deserving of worship. And so when we come to our passage in Matthew 6, 25, and we find that word, therefore, it could be that Jesus is saying something like, because these are the things that characterize true disciples, my disciples also should not be characterized by anxiety or worry, which evidences unbelief. This is no doubt true. However, 
I want to explore another reason that Jesus could be beginning this passage with the word therefore. And this reason, I think, holds true in the parallel passage in Luke's gospel in chapter 12, verses 22 through 31. You see, it could be that Jesus is anticipating his listeners' objections to the kinds of things he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And he's ready to take those head on. I think these are the same kinds of objections that well up inside of us when we hear the kind of admissions that Jesus makes, admonitions that Jesus makes in Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Jesus says in those verses, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Okay, Jesus, but can I own a home? Can I have a car? Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Okay, Jesus, but don't I need money to live? Can I have a bank account? What does it look like to use money but not serve it? How can I provide for myself and for my family? And so in this, therefore, at the beginning of our passage is a crucial warning that connects Matthew 6, 19 through 24 which mainly talks about possessions, to Matthew 6, 25 through 33, which addresses more fundamentally our needs. And as we're going to see, just as our possessions can become an idol, so also can our very needs. Wow, think about that. Our possessions can become idols, yes, But Jesus is teaching in this passage that so too can our very needs, becoming idols of the heart that eclipse the worship and the faith that must be present in the Christian life. And Jesus is going to address this idolatry of needs in Matthew 6, 25, by first commending a faith that comprehends God's purposes for life. Look with me again at verse 25. Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Jesus begins this passage with the command to not be anxious. We find that same word repeated again in verse 27 in our passage, verse 28, and verse 31. Other translations render this phrase to not be anxious as, do not worry, Or do not be worried. But the Greek word underlying these translations can also, other places, mean just simply to care for or to have concern for. In fact, the meaning of this word is determined by the context. And whether or not it is a good or sinful concern depends largely on its subject and the context. Much like how Denny talks about the word desire. There are godly concerns, just like there are godly desires, and there are ungodly concerns, namely anxiety and and worry, just like there are ungodly desires. This is why I think the King James translation here is confusing when it says, take no thought of your life. It doesn't clarify the morality of the concern as the word worry or anxiety does. And the biblical concept of worry 
anxiety and anxiety must be distinguished from the concept of care and concern. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12:25, Paul talks about the members of the church having concern. It's the same word underlying our passage in Matthew 6:25, for one another to care for one another. In this context, this concern clearly is a good. And in Philippians 2:20, Paul commends Timothy to the church of Philippi, saying, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned, same word in Matthew 6.25, for your welfare. But it's just two chapters later that Paul can warn the church at Philippi and command them in Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious, same word, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So when Jesus says, do not be anxious, he's not telling us to have no cares, no concerns, no motivated interests about our lives or our bodies. So so what is it that he's saying? Look with me again at Matthew 6.25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. In this context, Jesus gives very specific things not to be anxious about, life and body. Jesus summarizes life in eating and drinking and summarizes the body as what, something, what someone wears, the clothing. Well, why is it that Jesus commands his disciples not to worry about life, talking about food and, and drink, and the body talking about clothing? Isn't it the case that with these aspects of life, we're at the rock bottom of what it takes for humans to exist? Aren't we talking about needs here? Not simply wants or luxuries? Just four years before Auden's poem, Age of Anxiety, was published in 1943, Abraham Maslow introduced to the world his hierarchy of needs pyramid in a paper titled, A Theory of Human Motivation. And with this pyramid, Maslow attempted to summarize human need and motivation on a gradated scale. The base of this pyramid represents the most basic human need, summarized as the physiological needs. This includes things like food and shelter from the elements. And the idea of this pyramid is the next level, the needs of the next level and the motivation that takes to get those needs can only be pursued when the need below it is met. So the base level being physiological, that need must be met before the next level can be pursued, namely safety. And the next level is love and belonging. And the the level after that is esteem. And finally, the top level is self-actualization. Interestingly enough, later on, Maslow added to this pyramid at the top the need of transcendence or to go beyond self-actualization. We could quibble with Maslow on the identification and ordering of these higher needs, but we definitely would not want to disagree with him that this pyramid rightly describes the pursuit of the natural man and the needs of the natural man. I don't think we have any disagreement that at base, 
If a human does not have basic needs, the physiological needs met of food and shelter, then that person will die. Simply put, if we don't have that base need met, we will die. But Jesus, of course, knows this. So so what is he doing here? Jesus goes right to the base of our needs, right to the heart of what we naturally think is the center reality of life. And he says, those, even those your most basic needs, they too can become idols. And you should not be anxious about those. How can Jesus say this? Well, I think one clue for us to to process what Jesus says here is found at the end of verse 25 in the rhetorical question that he asks there. He says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Did you catch that? The operative words in both parts of this question are, are more than. Another way we could rephrase what Jesus is saying here is to say this, Yes, life is not less than food, You cannot live without food, but you should live for much more than food. And yes, the body is not less than clothing. You need clothing for covering and protection from the elements. But the body is for much more than hanging clothes on. While Jesus affirms the necessity of food and clothes in the Christian life on earth, He's making the argument that they do not comprise the sum of our existence. They do not exhaust God's purposes for us in this life. We could put it another way, like this. Man was not made for food, but food for man. Man was not made for clothes, but clothes for man. In the first verse of Matthew 6.25, Jesus is driving his disciples to consider God's purposes for mankind. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We could rephrase this. Is not your life for more than food and your body for more than clothing? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's calling us to transcend not through Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but actually in spite of those needs, Jesus is calling us to start at the top with God and his purposes. And he's going to say later on, all these things will be given to you if you start there. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 4, is the narrative of his temptation in the wilderness. After the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert and he fasts for 40 days, Jesus is confronted by Satan in the wilderness and Satan tempts him. Now keep in mind, Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's very, very hungry. He is acutely aware of that base need, that base physiological need for food. And what's the first thing Satan tempts him with? His need for food. Again, this is a legitimate need. 
And Satan tells Jesus to turn the stones into bread so that he can meet his needs. But how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in this response, Jesus acknowledges that man does live by bread, that word alone, but it's not by bread alone. Do you see what he's confessing there? Is not life more than food? Yes. God provided manna from heaven for his people Israel in the wilderness. He he meets their physiological need. But then he reminds them, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus comes proclaiming in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he tells his disciples in John 17.3, this is eternal life. This is what it means to live, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And is not the body more than clothes? God clothed the bodies of Adam and Eve in the garden as a result of their fall into sin. And then in the wilderness, he did not let the soles of the Israelites' shoes or their clothes to wear out. But then in Isaiah 61.10 comes the promise that God will clothe me in garments of salvation to cover me with the, with the robes of righteousness. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19 we read, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Is not the body made for more than clothes? Yet we're prone to worry about the next meal. And make life nothing more than food on the table, today, tomorrow, and the next day. And we're prone to worry about our clothes, about the latest fads and fashions of our anxious age. To quote C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, he says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Is not life more than this? As Jesus puts it another way in Mark 8:36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To have every single one of his his needs met and to forfeit his soul. There's a fascinating parallel to our passage in Matthew 6.25, later on in Matthew 10.28. And to make clear the parallel, you need to know that in Matthew 10.28, the word translated soul is the same word that's translated life in Matthew 6.25. Matthew 10.28 Jesus says this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Same word as life in our passage. Body, life, body, soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
In this parallel passage, we get to the question of God's purposes and our concerns, which both point beyond this life and into the next. Yes, there are things, there are people and circumstances that can kill the body. Lack of food, exposure to the elements. We have physiological needs. Maslow rightly recognized this. And those needs are basic. But God's purposes for life and the body reach into the next life and point to him. And anxiety about our needs in this life can only be overcome by a faith that comprehends God's purposes for our lives. It's hard to find a better illustration of this point than the parable that Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Here's what Jesus says to them. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This rich man had all his needs met, didn't he? He even laid up for his future needs. But they became a snare to him and an idol for him. And they put his very soul in peril. You see, Christian faith overcomes anxiety by comprehending God's purposes. This kind of faith recognizes God as the creator of life and God is the creator of the body and food and clothing. It's he that made it all. And he is telling us in Matthew 6.25 that there are purposes for these things that point beyond themselves and to him. Some of us in this room no doubt know what it means to be hungry. Or know what it means to lack adequate clothing. What's Matthew 6.25 saying to you? In moments of hunger or moments of lack, these moments that induce anxiety, this passage is encouraging you to dwell on the truth that God made you for himself. Not for food and not for clothes. And that if you have him, and if you have his word, and if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you have everything you need for life, true life. Come what may in this life. And this kind of faith is the kind of faith that can channel the Lord's prayer and cry out saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, and give us this day our daily bread. Some of us in this room don't know what it means to be truly hungry, except maybe if I, I go too long and your tummy start rumbling. 
Some of us don't know what it means to lack adequate clothing. What's Matthew 6.25 saying to us? How much more of a word of warning is this to us not to get hung up on our own perceived needs? To get so hung up on food and clothes and life and have such a tunnel vision chasing after these things that we risk missing God's purposes for our life and for our bodies. In these moments of anxiety, this passage is encouraging us to dwell on the truth that God made you for himself, not for food or clothes. And again, that if you have him, if you have his word, and if you have his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you too have everything you need for life, come what may. This is the same kind of faith that can channel the same Lord's Prayer and cry out, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another prayer that I think captures the spirit of this passage is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, where we read, Two things I ask you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In Matthew 6.25, we see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that comprehends God's purposes. In the next section, in Matthew 6.26-30, we see that anxiety is also overcome by a faith that rests in God's providence. After commanding his disciples not to be anxious about life and body by considering God's purposes in verse 25, Jesus points in verses six or 26 through 30 to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and gives his disciples another reason why they shouldn't worry or have anxiety, namely God's providence. Did you know that the doctrine of God's providence is essential to the Christian life? What do we mean by God's providence? Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism defines God's providence this way. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This understanding of God's superintendence and sovereignty, his benevolent involvement in the daily hour and minute of each day, it's attested to throughout the scriptures. In Job 12, 7 through 10, we read Job confessing God's meticulous providence when he says this, Ask the beasts and they will tell you. The birds of the heavens, and they will teach you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. In Psalm 147, verses 7 through 9, that passage that Matt read, 
We read this, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with the clouds, he prepares rain for the earth, he makes grass grow on the hills, he gives to the beasts their food, and to the young ravens that cry. So when Jesus turns our attention to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field in Matthew 6, 26 through 30, he's actually channeling and even developing the biblical theme of God's providence and creation. And he does this in order to help us overcome anxiety. Look with me at verse 26 again. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In this verse, Jesus points to God's provision for the birds of the air, and in so doing, he's actually making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Have you ever seen a farmer work? It's a hard labor. But do the birds collect the seed to plant? Do they plow the ground? Do they drill the seed? Do they irrigate the land and tend the weeds and harvest the grain? Of course they don't. But yet they still have provision. And Jesus here is teaching us that it is God's hand in creation that sustains the birds of the air. I think it's fascinating that Jesus says in verse 26 that it is your heavenly Father who feeds the birds. Do we understand the theological implications behind that statement? The birds of the air get their sustenance not from their Father, from our Father. His hand feeds them. Two things we can observe from this verse the fact that seed grows in the wild where no man has cultivated it, and the fact that the seed grows under the cultivation of a man, both of these are the means by which God uses and superintends to feed the birds. How amazing is that? And secondly, Jesus says that it is your heavenly Father who does this. The Father is not the Father of the birds, but rather He is called the Father of Jesus' disciples. And it's here that we can see that argument from the lesser to the greater. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. How much more important are you to your Father? The fact that God is called Father of, of Jesus' disciples implies that we who follow Jesus are called God's sons and daughters. And in this passage, Jesus is actually encouraging us to draw out the implications of this. Not only does God superintend all of creation in His provision even for the birds of the air, He is called your heavenly Father. Are you not important to Him? Will He not provide for your sustenance? Before moving on to consider the lilies of the field, Jesus inserts a rhetorical question in verse 27. He says this, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's almost as if he's saying, Go ahead, see what happens if you worry. What does that accomplish? 
The birds of the air don't worry. They just go and get the seed, collect it, give it to the young. Does worry actually accomplish anything? At least toiling and working and striving is activity that yields some results. But worrying and anxiety, it's non-activity. And it's a dangerous spiral that yields no results. There's actually another layer of meaning here in verse 27. Who is able to add a single hour to the span of life? That same hand that feeds the birds is the same hand in which Job 12 tells us is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And so worry is the opposite of the only thing that puts us in relationship with him, which is faith. Jesus tells us not to worry by reminding us that it doesn't accomplish, accomplish anything either physically or spiritually speaking. In the same way that God provides food for his creation, Matthew 6, 28 through 29, Jesus points to the lilies of the field and the way that they are clothed to again undergird this doctrine of God's providence and the comfort that it should bring us as his children. Look with me at verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus most likely preached this sermon on the side of a mountain near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it probably was a stunningly beautiful setting. We can picture Jesus pointing out the birds gathering worms and grain for their young when he talks about God's provision for the birds of the air. We can picture him motioning to the fields, a beautiful field of wildflowers with the reds and yellows and purples and blues as he talks about how God closed the fields with such beauty. Think about that. This is no stingy God. This is the God who created the sunrise and the sunset to clothe the skies. This is the God who clothes the tiger and the zebra with brilliant stripes. Just get out in nature and try to conclude that God is a miser. Open your eyes, Jesus is saying, and look at the world that he has created, how he has clothed his creation. But Jesus isn't done. He turns our attention to Solomon in verse 29. Solomon is the richest man who ever lived. You know the story. Solomon asked for wisdom instead of riches, and God gave him both wisdom and riches. This is the richest man who ever lived. No one was clothed with more beauty and had more possessions around him. And yet... Jesus points to the lilies and the grass and says, clothe greater than Solomon. And he's not done. He points to his disciples and he says, more important than that still. Did you catch that equation? Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, and the lilies are clothed greater. And his disciples 
will be clothed greater still. And then as if to punctuate God's generosity, Jesus declares this promise in verse 29 over those of little faith. The little faith of the disciple rooted in God whose purposes are pure and whose providence is perfect can and will overcome all anxiety. Have you stopped to consider lately your own frailty, your own dependence on God's providence? Take a deep breath. That breath is the gift of your benevolent Father. Thank Him and trust in His good providence, come what may, because He is so good and so sovereign, and you are so loved, son and daughter of the Most High God, if you even have a little faith. Now, to be perfectly clear, Jesus' appeal to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, it's no denial of lack and no denial of the reality of death and evil in the world. God's sovereignty and providence stand over even these things, and that too should be a comfort to us. Later on in the book of Matthew, in chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus will again point to the birds, but this time to the sparrow who falls to the ground. But the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the Lord's knowledge. The bird that God feeds, he also knows the hour that it dies. And in our passage, we are told that the lilies of the field that are clothed in such splendor are today, here, and tomorrow thrown into the fire. It's important to know that Jesus' appeal to God's providence is not a glib promise that everything that happens to his creatures and his creation will be free of evil and suffering and death. This isn't the promise of God's providence. But the doctrine of God's providence does mean that everything happens according to God's purposes, which are ultimately working together for the good of those who love him. And friends, there is no greater antidote to anxiety and worry in this life than the promise that God is providentially sovereign. Even over our next meal and the clothing that we'll wear tomorrow. Question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks why we should study the doctrine of God's promise. What good will it do? Here's the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. In verse 25 and verses 26 through 30, we saw that anxiety is overcome by a faith that comprehends God's purposes and rests in God's providence. In the final section, Matthew 6, 31 through 33, we see that anxiety is overcome by a faith that seeks God's kingdom and his righteousness. Look with me at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This section again starts with another therefore. And it's because of God's purposes and because of God's providence over creation, those previous sections, therefore Jesus again again commands his disciples to not be anxious about food or clothing or drink. But this time, in restating that command not to be anxious, Jesus gives us another reason. In verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus is used for the word Gentile here as referring to those who do not know the God of the Bible and those who are not yet God's people. I say yet because when we get to Matthew 28, In the Great Commission, it's actually these same Gentiles that Jesus is sending his disciples out to baptize and make disciples of. But here in Matthew 6, he's referring to the Gentiles that do not know God, that are not God's people. And his point is simple to point to them. If you don't know the God of the Bible, your life is not characterized by his purposes and under his providence informed. This is the world we live in, our anxious age. Anxiety breeding more anxieties. All around us is the rat race. People who do not know God seeking after food and clothes and amassing for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy. And they're serving not the God of the Bible, but the God of self and mammon. This is a people who do not know God and what they live for. But the Christian life, Jesus says, is not characterized by this kind of pursuit. Well, what is it that characterizes the Christian life? What is it that the Christian life should seek in place of the things that the Gentiles run after? The answer is in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here and throughout our text, we find indications that Jesus' command not to be anxious, again, is not denigrating our needs for food and clothing. Verse 25, Jesus says that life is more than food, implying not less. In verse 26 and 32, Jesus assures us that the Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And in verse 33, we're given the promise that all these things will come to those who seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So again, what Jesus is driving at is not the denigration of our needs, but the prioritization of God's kingdom, God's rule over God's people in God's place. The exact thing that Jesus commands his disciples to pray for in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. His kingdom over our own, his kingdom in place of our own. But paradoxically, we don't lose our kingdom when we prioritize God's kingdom. God's kingdom becomes our own. How is this so? It's through the gift of God's righteousness. It's alongside the pursuit of God's kingdom that we are told to seek God's righteousness. Is this a righteousness of ourselves, found in ourselves, pulled up, 
by our own bootstraps? What do we see in verse 33? Seek first His righteousness. Many commentators are, are actually loath to see gift righteousness here in Matthew 6.33. These commentators will point to Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But note the pronoun in 5.20, your righteousness. In our passage in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says to seek his righteousness. In other words, we pursue Christ's righteousness by faith, not by works, which leads to our righteousness, the gift of Christ's righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. I don't know how else to read this passage, but that the righteousness that Jesus commands to seek is God's righteousness given to us in Christ. How do we seek God's righteousness? In Isaiah 61.10, we read this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And in Jeremiah 23.5-6, the prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from Isaiah 61 and said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These are the promises he said are fulfilled in his coming. You see, we seek God's righteousness when we seek after the one whose name is called the Lord is our righteousness. We seek God's righteousness when we seek the one who delivered these words in the Sermon on the Mount. We seek God's righteousness when we believe the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness when we run to Jesus. And what's the promise? Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, all these things will be given to you. Don't we see how all these things have already been given to us who are in Christ? We who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light, who have received Christ's righteousness, we've been given the food of Christ's body broken for us. We've been given the drink of Christ's blood shed for us. And we've been given the splendid robes of Christ's righteousness. How can anxiety stand in the presence of such good gifts? In this passage, in Matthew 6, 25-33, Jesus commands his disciples not to be anxious. And he does so by commanding them to comprehend God's purposes, to rest in God's providence, and to seek first 
God's kingdom, and his righteousness. Anxiety is a real phenomenon. But the Bible also tells us that anxiety is sin. Anxiety is real because uncertainty exists and because we are finite creatures who respond sinfully. The Bible also tells us that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin, even this small, seemingly insignificant sin of anxiety, separates us from our Creator. We live in an age of anxiety because we live in a sinful and faithless age. But if we can learn anything from our anxious age, it is that need fulfillment does not reduce anxiety. If anything, it tends to make it worse. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, your greatest need in life is not represented by Maslow's Pyramid. Your needs do not need to be fulfilled incrementally until you can transcend life and body. Your greatest need is for a Savior because of the very same sin that comes when we idolize our needs and we idolize ourselves. But the good news this morning is that Jesus offers to clothe you in his perfect righteousness, which gains you entrance into his kingdom. How does he meet this need? Only by faith. Only by faith in the Lord Jesus, the only name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Won't you repent of your anxiety, of your sin? Won't you believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved? Finally, Christian brothers and sisters, in Christ we are commanded to overcome anxiety. And we will overcome it in Christ. In Philippians 4, 6-7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Peter helps us in this in 1 Peter 5, 6-7, when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those of us who are in Christ, we have cast our cares on him, and we need to continue to do so daily by faith. We have peace with God in Christ Jesus through the food of his body and the blood and the, the cup of his blood and the clothing of his righteousness. We're going to celebrate that reality this morning in the Lord's Supper. So let us cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He cares for us in his purposes. He cares for us in his providence. And he cares for us in his kingdom and by giving us his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our anxieties and our tendency not to rely on you, not to cast our cares on you. But Lord, we seek after all manner of things that are not your kingdom and your righteousness. And Father, we need forgiveness. And Father, we thank you this morning that you have made provision in your son Jesus 
not only for the faith that overcomes anxiety, but for life in both the here and after. And Lord, it's in his name we trust and we pray this morning. Amen.